0: Let's get started. We are beginning today a uh, two-part series uh, in honor of Hanukkah. Uh, today's shear will be about, uh, as you can see by the title, more of a hashkafa focus. Uh, and then Emir Tashem Hashem, next week we'll have an overview of a lot of the halachos of candles uh, and Hanukkah, generally and obviously with a specific eye towards uh, women's obligation and some of the practical issues uh, that come up. But for today's uh, shear I want to do... Uh, Actually, as you see in the source sheet, I broke it down into three different and distinct uh, points, uh, each of which I think are beautiful and perhaps even in theory could have been elaborated on into a sheer uh, in itself, Uh, but I thought I would share three specific uh, points, all of which I think uh, come together uh, to encapsulate what I call the inner beauty of Hanukkah. That is to say... Uh, perhaps issues that we don't always appreciate. In that sense, they're inner. But I think if we take a step back and probe a little deeper, we'll find some really uh, beautiful uh, and meaningful uh, ideas which can not only um, be hopefully interesting and stimulating intellectually, uh, but just as importantly, inspire us and enrich uh, our Hanukkah experience. I was actually looking, it's not, it's not something I included in this year, but in preparation for this year, I was reading uh, an essay uh, of. From our Soloveitchik, and he pointed out something very interesting. I never thought of this. And he said, You know, in life, it's based on a comic of the Zohar, but it's really just an astute observation. You know, you, you really need mazel, and very often the success or the popularity of something or someone is not necessarily in proportion to the merits. And you have certain people who are very successful, and other people could be just as talented or bright and aren't have the same success. But it's also true. In the religious sphere, you know, why is this shul more popular than the other? They're just as, you know, a lot of things are out of out of our control. So he made the point that Yom Tovim Chagim also need mazel, and there are certain holidays which had mazel. It says Hanukkah has had mazel. We know it's true today, and he point out he remembers he has talks about his his memories of early 20th century uh, Europe when he was a little kid, uh, and even when he was a little bit older before he emigrated to America that Hanukkah perhaps only rivaled by the Pesach Seder, is one of those mitzvahs, at least candles, in some form or another. Now, I'm not discussing if you and I would always consider what everyone, every Jew lights to be perfectly halachic, but that's irrelevant for this purpose. Chanukah is like unbelievably popular in the sense of the percentage of Jews who observe it or commemorate it, even on some, any level, is far higher than they would in almost any other mitzvah. certainly other holidays. There are holidays of Jews that Jews have never even heard of that are in the Torah, But Hanukkah, for whatever the reason, proximity to other calendar dates, it doesn't matter, that's the point. It had, so to speak, a mazel. Hanukkah is something, but just because everyone does it, doesn't mean we truly understand or appreciate it. Uh, Moreover, uh, uh, an anecdote which I uh, often like to quote, uh, kind of introducing uh, Hanukkah or these type of shurim, uh, to me was very, very fascinating. There used to be, I don't know if it's still so popular, but it used to be very, very popular, uh, something called the comic clown. It'd be shows, kind of a la Broadway-type shows, but the entire performance would be a single person dressed up in some kind of a clown uh, costume who would act out something, which would not only be entertaining, but, you know, back when high culture was somewhat actually high culture, it was intended to be profound and thought-provoking. And if I remember correctly, I think the name was Hume Cronin. He was, like, the most famous clown of his day. And one of his most famous uh, performances was he'd come out onto the stage... Uh, and there'd be a spotlight on him, and then he would, you know, kind of act out in a way that it was clear, you know, when you were looking at him, that he lost his keys. And then at the other end of the stage is a spotlight on an empty space, and he spends a few minutes looking around, you know, this space which is probably as big as this table, you know, obviously not finding the key. Eventually, after you know, it seemed like forever, it was probably five minutes, a policeman comes out. He says to him, what's wrong? There's something I can do to help you. He says, yes, I, I've lost my keys. I, I cannot find them. He says, oh, pointing to the spot where the light is focused. Did you, is this where you lost them? He said, I don't think so. I'm not sure. Well, then why are you looking here? Because this is where the light is. That, that's the show. To me, it always resonated with this phenomenon of Hanukkah, which is to say, there's an instinct that people have, and it's not limited to Jews. It's universal. There's an instinct to be attracted to the light. Light is good. Light is uplifting. Darkness is bad. It's blah. Right? It's a known phenomenon. You know, certain levels of depression, even, even with a lowercase d, when the clock changes, all of a sudden, you know, four o'clock, it's dark out. You're exhausted. It's just a different. Right? We're attracted instinctively and naturally to the light. But that doesn't mean that we actually know what, what we're looking for. Right? We don't want to be somebody who just is attracted to the light, but doesn't know where the keys are. Right? It's not good enough to just... So we instinctively... And I, I think of this in light of that observation I, I mentioned from a People, Jews of all stripes, we're instinctively attracted to Hanukkah, we're attracted to the light, something beautiful and uplifting. But if we don't really understand what Hanukkah is about then we're basically like a clown looking in the wrong place for his keys. It's not enough to just have a gut instinct that there's something good here, the light, or want to go to the light. We need to understand what is the message of Hanukkah, or at least some of the messages, to truly, truly uh, understand, I would say, uh, not maybe not with our car keys, but keys for life. And therefore, again, out of endless possibilities, uh, I, as your faithful hero, have narrowed it down to three. So at least it's manageable for us. But there are many, many ideas, of course, we could have shared, but I'd like to share three specific and distinct ideas. I think you'll appreciate all of them. And at very least, I hope you can at least take one of them with you and uh, at some point share it with your family. So the first one I've entitled, Appreciating the Miracle of Nature, or I could have just as easily entitled, Everyday Life. Perhaps the most famous, famous question uh, regarding the holiday of Hanukkah, arguably one of the most famous questions in all of halachic literature, is the question at the top of your page. The source is the base Yosef. Uh, that's Rav Yosef Caro, And he asks a fundamental question that goes to the heart of everything you learned in kindergarten. That is to say, top of the page, Lama why is the holiday of Hanukkah eight days? <laughs> why is it eight days? Because the, there's a miracle. Candles stay lit eight days. We're actually going to see in the continuation of the year, we'll actually see the Gemara inside. So he says, well, one second, if you think about it, it's actually, you know, someone's not good at math or doesn't appreciate what's going on. We know there was enough oil to light for one day. So the miracle was that it lasted for eight. So eight minus one, higher mathematics, is seven. The miracle was seven days. It wasn't a miracle of the first day. That was how much oil they had. The miracle was that one jug of oil, which had enough to last one day, it actually lasted eight. So we should have a holiday. It should be a seven-day holiday. Everyone's already getting nervous. You're going to take away my eighth day, the kids especially, vacation, right? But it's a really profound and obvious question. I do not uh, exaggerate when I tell you that uh, a number of years ago in the library in Yeshiva, I saw a sefer that was entitled 400 answers to the base Yosef's Question." And I'm quite sure that at this point there are more than 400 answers to this question. As I say, it's the most famous question uh, maybe in history of halakha, certainly of Kanaka. The Beit Yosef himself uh, actually, who, who no one ever talks about anything but his question, he actually gives three answers, all of which are very sharp, very plausible. They're just not like inspiring. But he gives very, three very practical uh, answers. The first thing he says uh, is very simple. These were, you know, smart uh, Kohanim, they knew what they were doing. They had taken maybe a home uh, you know, you know home, home, home econ class or something. They said, we have to budget. And therefore, they didn't pour the whole jug in the first night. They only poured an eighth in. They poured a fraction, because they knew it's going to take eight days to come back from Tokoa where they were making the oil. So even though they only put in enough for, let's say, three hours, it actually remained lit for an entire day. So already on the first day, there was a miracle. There was actually oil getting put in each day, says the Base Yosef. But they're only putting in a teeny amount. But instead of only being lit for three hours a day, the candle is lit for a whole day. That's his first answer. On the second line, he gives the odi eshlomer, he gives the second answer. They know they poured in all the oil, but miraculously, the jug stayed full. On the next day, they poured in all the oil, and the jug stays full. So in fact, there was eight days of miracles. That's his second answer. And his third answer, uh, on the last line, he says that... It wasn't that the jug stayed full. It was that in the menorah itself, even though they had poured in all the oil, the fire is being burned, the candles remain lit, but the oil is not getting consumed. The oil stayed down, didn't get consumed. So he figures out three different ways. Each one of them are very plausible, very practical, very pragmatic. Three different ways you can envision that, in fact, there was a miracle that was already happening on the first day, and therefore it was an eight-day miracle, And the good news is, what they told you in Ghan is actually still correct that, yes, there was an eight-day miracle and that's why we have an eight-day holiday. Okay, that's his answer. Three answers, I guess. But as I mentioned, there are many, many more. And I want to share with you what, at least to me, I haven't seen all 400. I don't want to misrepresent myself, but I've seen many of them over the years. What to me is the most powerful and inspiring answer. And I have to say, years ago, uh, I had seen this idea in the name of one of the great Musr masters, the Altar of Kelm. One of the great (coughs) students of Yisrael Salantar. I couldn't track it down. I have some of the Altar of Kelm's Farm in my house, but I wasn't able to find it. It turns out, uh, without necessarily quoting it, because great ideas are often thought of by more than one person, that in a contemporary sefer, a beautiful set of, uh, of the Hashkafa essays by uh, one of the great gedolim of our day, Rav Usher Weiss, he actually, on his own, says the same idea that years and years ago I saw from the Altar of Kelm. So I'll, I'll give you, we'll see what Rav Weiss himself says in a minute, but Rav actually doesn't just say the same thing as I remember from the Altar of Kelm. He actually uses two of the primary sources as building blocks uh, to answer that question. And I want to start with the second source on your sheet, which is a famous Ramban. This is the Ramban uh, in the end of Parshas Bo, it's the last Ramban in Parshas Bo. And he asks another, this is a, you know, I hope I'm not uh, getting too repetitive or cliché, but he asks another super important and super very well-known and famous question, which is, how come Jews seem to have an obsession with Yitzhiaz Mitzrayim? It's not just eight days a year on Pesach that we commemorate Yitzhiaz Mitzrayim. There are so many things that we mention, sometimes it's in the P'sukim. sometimes it's even in the language of our davening or our brachos, where we mention Zecher, Yitzhiaz Mitzrayim, which ostensibly seem to have no connection whatsoever to Yitzhak Mithrayim. Tefillin and mezuzah and Shab, all sorts of different things. What do those things have to do with with Yitzhak Mithrayim? It only happened to Nissan. We're talking about Egyptians. There's no connection. Why do we constantly bring up Yitzhak Mithrayim? That's the Ramban's question. And his answer, it's a long piece, but the bottom line, and we'll see the particular part inside that's relevant for us in a second, but his basic point is that there is something about Pesach, Yitzhiaz Metzrayim, that is not just yet another miracle that we commemorate, but specifically Yitzhiaz Metzrayim, more than anything else, confirms the basic foundations of our emuna. Our entire emuna, he says, rests on the foundation of Yitzhiaz Metzrayim. Now I will admit, by the way, this is not something that would work when I say emuna. this won't work in a Shatorah or in an Antis shabbaton, meaning it's circular. If you don't believe in the history of Yitzhiaz Metzrayim, then this won't help. But if you believe that the events actually occurred the way they're described, which is a leap of faith for someone who may not be brought up religious, but if you would believe that, then the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, as we have it traditionally, confirms the basic tenets of our Amunah. He specifically, not only the existence of Hashem, but the fact that Hashem knows what's going on in the world, that He cares about what's going on in the world, that He interjects Himself in the world, that there's reward and punishment—all of those things are latent and inherent in the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Well, one of those major foundations that he talks about that comes up uh, in Yisiot Mitzrayim has to do with the ability of Hashem to interact in the world. Now, how did Hashem interact in the world in Yisiot Mitzrayim in the whole story of Pesach? Miraculously. Rivers turning to blood, uh, you know, uh, hail coming down with fire and all sorts of things, and then, of course, not least of which was splitting the Yamsuf. Okay? So, in that vein, take a look at the second source on your sheet. Says the Ramban, there are so, so many mitzvos that mention Tz. Mitzrayim, even though they're not Pesach related. Why? That's the main point I mentioned, that the story of Tz. Mitzrayim is the most intense, you know, concrete uh, confirmation of the tenets of our faith. If you accept, again, you have to accept the historicity uh, of the Itzies story, but if you do, then all the basic principles of our faith get confirmed. Now, he then discusses the idea of miracles, which we all understand, that's the incredible thunder and light show of Itzies Mitzrayim and the Makos, etc. And then he says something which is incredibly profound, and again, at the risk of repeating myself or sounding cliche, very well known, very famous, because it is so important. Says the Ramban, It's true that we experienced miracles in the Yitzhia S. story. But that's only one type of miracle. That's not the only way Hashem interacts in the world. Now this may be a terminology and a dichotomy that you're familiar with and you may have heard this before but it actually all comes from the Ramban. Ramban lived a long time ago, so there have been many people since then who have been influenced by this Ramban who will say similar things. What is the Ramban saying in that one little sentence? That when we talk about miracles, we really mean two different things. There are two forms, two types of miracles. What he refers to in this context is Nisim Hamu, for some of them, the famous ones, the big ones, you see as time. or in other contexts he calls a Nis a revealed miracle. Hashem swoops in, Changes the laws of nature, and wow. But says Raman, there's another thing called nisim nistarim. Not Hashem breaking the laws of nature, but the laws of nature themselves. The very fact that the world works in an orderly way, all of that comes from Hashem, It is no less miraculous. It's more than that, though. So that typology, if you've ever heard that phrase, a hidden miracle nis nistarim, it comes from this Ramban. But it's more than that. Of the two types of miracles, Ramban is putting you uh, forgive the expression, he's putting all of his chips in the middle of the table. He doubles down. So it's not just that I'm claiming there's two types of miracles. Of the two, he says, which are the most important? Not the thunder and light show, not the things that get all the headlines. Right? It's the fine print where the good stuff is. The everyday Nisim Nistarim. That's the main thing. Again, let's repeat that phrase I just read before inside the first underlined part. Umin hanisam hagedolam hamuforsanim anemodeh minisam anistarim. Shehem, it's the hidden miracles with taru of tarakula. Again, it's great that X, Y, and Z times in history Hashem did these crazy miracles for us. It's great; we appreciate that. But that's not a foundation for life. A foundation for life is the type of stuff that happens in life, in everyday life, in every one of our lives. And those are the Nisan Nistarim. So if those are so important, why did Hashem, X amount of times in history, swoop down and split the on or do other such things? This is a complete paradigm shift from the way we're used to thinking. So you, he only did those every now and then just to make sure we know that the fact that your car started or when you had to pull off to the side of the road after someone stopped to help you, or you went to the doctor and you heard good news, or whatever the things are, all those little things. Your kid finally listened and picked up his clothes. It's a miracle. All of those things are from Hashem to get us thinking. The yamsof is that so you realize that that was from Hashem, not from the yamsof from Hashem. That's not so important. Hashem could have, Hashem could have taken us in that another way. He didn't need to do that. He could have made it a financial crisis and Paro just you know I don't know let us go or who knows. He could have done a hundred things. He did that so that we reorient ourselves and see Hashem in everything. It's a, it's, the main thing's not Yamsuf. The main thing is that you woke up today and you're healthy. The main thing is that the sun rises. The main thing is that the grass grows. That's the main thing. That's the Yisrael Kratar Kula. She'ein now he really, he, he's very extreme here. Ein chelik Moshe b'chal shakulam, nisim ein teva Now he doesn't mean there's no such thing as nature. Right? The Ramban He's not as well known as a man of science of his day, the way the Rambam was. But the Ramban was also a doctor. The Rambam was very sophisticated in the science of his day. I don't think they understood everything we understand, obviously, but he understood. He's not saying that there's no nature. What he's saying is that what you have to believe, and if you don't believe this, he's basically calling you a heretic, a kofar. We have to that Hashem is the author of the laws of nature. If you would see Chas Sham, the laws of nature, is independent of Hashem. So that's heresy, that's cure. But not he's not denying to our laws of nature. Again, I don't know if he knew what gravity was, but he intuited that there were laws of nature. He understood the sunrises and the sunsets. So he understood that. But it all comes from Hashem. If Hashem is the author of the laws of nature, you know what an author can also do? If the author wants, he can change the laws. The, the coder can go back in, right? You and I don't know how to change the code. We're sharing this particular program we're using. It's always got the same bugs. It's annoying us. So we can complain. We can switch to another company. But the coder, the programmer, can go behind, you know, go in the back and change it. The author can change it. You can read a book and just find the the ending was a little lame. The ending is disappointing. But if, but if you were the author, you could actually rewrite it. So once you acknowledge that Hashem is the author of nature, then Hashem can also edit and change nature. That's the the, the Yitzhak moments. But that's not the key. The key is that Hashem wrote everything, even the small parts. Okay, this is incredible. This is a very very famous uh, idea of the. Uh, Ramban. And the truth of the matter is there's a very powerful Gemara which uh, I think illustrates this in a very, very meaningful way, which is the next verse on your sheet. It's the Gemara Tainis taf-chaf-hei. It talks about Rabbi Ben Bendosa. Among all the Tanayim, Rabbi Dosa, among is in a very short list of people that the Gemara itself extols his miraculous powers. There's a, many stories in the Gemara of the miraculous powers of Rabbi Ben Bendosa. So, in the context of these uh, stories about him, uh, they tell the story in Daf Chavayir and of Chad Be Shimsheh, an Arab Shabbos Chazi Labarte to have He's a good father, and he notices he's not just running around for Shabbos. I'm not as good a father because my kids know, and my wife, everyone knows, for many years ever since I was just became a shul rav. On Fridays, you don't bother up unless it's an emergency. I'm in the bunker downstairs in my office preparing the shurim, etc., etc. I wouldn't notice. He's a better father than me. He noticed his daughter was sad. Daughter was sad. Okay. So he says, Why are you upset? What's wrong? So she tells him, I made a mistake. I was filling up the candles. Instead of pouring in the oil, and now we would say the paraffin or whatever, by accident I poured in the vinegar. Maybe the candle will give me up a little bit of a flame, something. But I'm not gonna, have, you know, it's not vinegar is not flammable. It's not gonna work. I'm not gonna have beautiful Shabbos candles. Shabbos. I messed up, and now she's very, very sad. So he responds, second line, BT, my ichbatlach. Why do you care? What does it matter if it was vinegar or oil? Mish amar l'shemin viyidloch. Hu yomar l'chometz the same one, the Bonashalam who said that usually oil is flammable, so for you we'll say the vinegar is flammable. Now, because he's Rahni Mendoza, sure enough, the Gemara continues and says, kul." Not only did it light, but in fact, instead of lasting for a few hours and you know, you, by the time you finish benching or you you know, the candles go out, the candles stayed lit Allah Hanukkah, an entire day until Havdullah, the Shabbos candles, the Friday night candles were still lit. Yeah, because Rabbi Hanim ben could do miracles. He could be the shaliach of that. But the key, of course, is that underlying part. It's a, again, it's a paradigm shift. Why do you think that vinegar remaining lit for Shabbos candles for a day, why is it any more miraculous than oil? You tell, what is the difference? There's only, and now I'm elaborating and clear what the Gemara means. There's only one difference. A thousand times in our life we've seen oil be flammable, and we've never seen vinegar. But that's it. If we were to see vinegar a thousand times, then that would be normal. The fact that we never saw such a thing, and now it happened. Right? Why? It's the same thing. Why is splitting the Yamsuf a greater miracle than the sun rising? Or than any other law of nature we take for granted. I'm not even such a biology expert, but you just read even a little bit how the eye works. How... Any decision you make, the thousands, the millions of things have to go right in a millisecond. Why is that any less of a miracle than pick your miracle? The only answer is because the sun rises every day, the sun sets every night, so we're used to it. If we had never seen it before, we'd be talking about it the way we talk about it. It says, that's Mitzrayim. Right. So it says Cesar Chaim and daughter. There's no. You think that it's not a miracle when oil lights? Why is it not a miracle? So to put Ramban's language in, what he's saying is, every time the oil lights, that's what's called an ace nistar. Because Hashem built that into nature. So if Hashem wants, and Biskuti, He's going to change it today for you, I wouldn't recommend you know, doing that to see if you're, you, know, you or your husband or your father is Rehili you know, Mendoza. It doesn't work for everybody. But conceptually, it's the same idea. Now, we could go on and on about this, but I just want to bring it back to where we started so we can move on to the next point. And I think it's a really, really uh, profound idea, which is a high madrega. Uh, you know, I don't know how many of us, uh, myself included, you know, go through every day and can really keep this in the front of our mind. But there are people who, frankly, do live lives like this. And I have to say, um, inevitably people are going to listen to this online that don't live in Eretz Yisrael, so forgive me, but you find much more of the people who live their lives like this living here. It's much, much harder to live your life this way in Chutz Now that I've lived here, I know it's not so easy to always see it here either. Especially if you go to the post office. Hamel, that's the proof that there's a Satan. Uh, <laughs> and there's Ghanim on this <coughs> world. Having one in the post office in at least seven or eight years because of so, you know, it. Whatever you're sending to me isn't worth it. Unless it's a million dollars, I'm not going. It's just not worth it. There's no present, there's no Amazon thing. If they're not delivering, I'm not going. Anyway, so it's not it's like easy always here, but there's no question. I remember even before we made Aliyah, I would come back from. I used to lead trips from my shul in Baltimore to Israel, and I would, you know, either to my with my family and my wife, or sometimes in the shul. I would talk about it, and after, after a number of years, I realized the one thing I repeated every year when I would talk about my trip would be the amazing people I met and how people, they just they live with a moon like Hashem is just part of their life. So it's not easy. I don't think it's necessarily easy for any of us, but it does exist, and it can and it can be done. And even if we're only doing it X amount of the day, not every day, it's still better than nothing but to be able to realize that everything we have is from Hashem. So how does this relate to Hanukkah? So take a look at the last source in this first section, of Asher Weiss, Minchas Asher. It says, Now you understand why we have an eight-day holiday. And he gives the example of the Ramban and the Gemara that I just mentioned, and let's read the underlying part. Umar gishim anu, hayom can also say the same thing for the, uh, for yom echad, yomar Vyadlok. Shmoni I Amim. Mean, says Russia, you know why it's an eight-day holiday? Not the way the Beis Yosef came up with all these different things. They only used this amount of oil, or they, you know. No, no they, they put in all the oil, the jug was empty, and at the end of the day, there was no oil left in the menorah. And yet, it kept on burning. But that's a seven-day miracle. It was natural for one day. It's only a seven-day miracle. So why do we have an eight-day holiday? day holiday, Says Rosh Weiss, Because we're thanking Hashem for the first day, too. Hanukkah is the holiday of the recognition of not only of the Nes Nigla of the seven days, it's a recognition of the Nes Nistar of the first day. The Chiddush of Cholak isn't the eighth day; it's the first day. We celebrate even on the first day as a reminder, as an acknowledgment, as a statement to ourselves, to our children, to our families, and hopefully to the world. Pirsu Nisa, that the first day is just as big a miracle as the other seven. Who said that oil should light? Why should it work? Hashem said he created the laws of nature. Wow! Nais means Hashem did it. It's just a synonym. Hashem did that too. That's no less a miracle than the other seven days. That's why we have an eighth holiday. One day for the hidden miracle, and then the seven the other seven days corresponding to the more public miracles. Yes, it's true. Of course it was more public when you have no oil left and the candles are burning, of course. But we also have a first day of Hanukkah to remind us of the Nisim Nisar. Yes, okay, that's point number one. Point number two the majesty of the Jewish home. So if you take a look at the Gemara, this is the famous Gemara, Chaf Aleph, Amr Aleph, in Shabbos. What is the mitzvah of the Ner? Tanar Abanan, Mitzvah Shanakah, Ner Yishuvesel. Before going on to the other parts of the mitzvah, which we'll get to uh, later in this year. The basic mitzvah of Hanukkah, as everyone knows, and no one has ever done, I assume, but we all know. We've learned this before. The basic mitzvah, you see, this is in the Gemara, Chazal, when they made the holiday of Hanukkah, as you want to fulfill the mitzvah. Doesn't matter what night of Hanukkah, doesn't matter how many people in the house, one candle. Every night, Nacha candle, Nacha candle, Nacha candle. The end of the holiday, eight candles. I live alone, eight candles. I have a family of ten, eight candles. That's all you need. One candle per family per night, period. Okay? Of course, we do more, because there's a hitter mitzvah, which we'll get to uh, in the third part of this year. But isn't it striking? Not just that that's the mitzvah. could have done anything. Why did they pick eight, one? We'll get to that. But it's not the one part that's fascinating. How did the Gemara formulate it? it didn't say you need one for ner'ish ubeso. There's already a, kind of an emphasis on the home. Now, you could say that's just a practical or a pragmatic thing. But it's interesting. If you take a look at the next source, the Rambam picks up on this as well. Kameneros who humadlik b'chanukah. Mitzvah kol Bayes Ubayes Madlik There's a focus on the home. On the home. On the home. And those of us who learned together uh, a month or two ago the laws of Hanukkah candles, we had two Shuriman, uh, excuse me, on Shabbos candles. So you recall, I think it was on the first, we had a two part series on Shabbos candles. I think it was the first Shir, I mentioned the following question. When a woman lights Shabbos candles, is she lighting on behalf of the home? And therefore, automatically, Mimela, anyone who happens to live in the home, is fulfilling a mitzvah. Like a mezuzah. Or is it, no, every person, you, your husband, your children, any, every individual has a mitzvah, but just like the husband makes kiddush and is motzi everybody, the mom lights candles, is motzi everybody. Do you have to be motzi your family members in candles? Or is it just that, no, the house needs candles, now they have them. Or is it that each of us have to do a mitzvah, but you'll do it for me. So we asked that question regarding Shabbos candles, and basically we you know, we talked about the different possibilities in Afghaminas but that's the issue which is very famously comes up in Hanukkah. Right? Mezuzah, right? There's no mitzvah for me to put on mezuzah and my wife to put on mezuzah and my adult children to put on mezuzah. Okay, but since I'm going to put it up, they were yotze. No, that, that's not the mitzvah of mezuzah. There's no mitzvah on every individual type a mezuzah. The home needs a mezuzah. So a number of Achronim point out, based on this Gemara, this Rambam, and other sources, that it sounds like that's what the Gemara is saying when it comes to Hanukkah. That the main, it's true, there's a Mahadrin that we and all of us and the kids, everyone likes their own menorah. But the core mitzvah, the original core mitzvah of Hanukkah, it wasn't just one versus eight. It was a bias versus gava. Is it on the person? Everyone's going to like their own menorah? I'm sorry for those of you who are more in Dukta. If you know this about Israelis, they're very hypersensitive, you can't say a menorah, menorah. This is a menorah. You can't. lights are menorah. What we light is a Hanukkah. You have never experienced that rude Israeli. My, the first year we lived in Israel, we were me and my wife were scholars residents in a pretty Anglo community in Yerushalayim. all the shirim were in English, uh, and my I spoke I think three times. That all went fine. Uh, but my wife, I wanted to. know The wife should give. A, my wife should give a share to the women. So Shabbos afternoon, she's giving a share. And she's, I don't know what she saw but it was a Shabbos Hanukkah she she's doing some kind of Hanukkah and within the opening sentence she's nervous she doesn't usually uh, do this kind of thing anyway she says something about oh, you like the menorah and some woman she was like it's a Hanukkah <laughs> oh my gosh wow if I had been there <laughs> it's good I wasn't there anyway people have to be like that okay anyway I'm getting over it um, so in case you know anyone who might be sensitive to this if you, you've been in the room you should be aware there's a certain percentage of people who are very hypersensitive. It's a Hanukkiah. Okay. Anyway. The menorah. Okay, I'm Jewish. I call it a menorah. So, the menorah, it's not just so that how many candles are in the menorah. It seems like there's an emphasis of chazal, that at least in the basic core mitzvah. It's a mitzvah on the home, on the bias. Now, why should that have been? So one theory is, I didn't give you this in the sources, but one theory is that it is a Midah K'nege Midah, it was a response to the Gezeros of the Greeks. We have from various sources that they prohibited certain specific mitzvot, maybe brismila, Kiddush achodeh, things like that. But we have sources, in fact the Rambam quotes this in a letter, but we have it from sources even earlier than the Rambam, that one of the Gezeros that the Greeks made, the Jewish people couldn't close their doors. whether it was fritznius, or they don't want us surreptitiously doing mitzvot in private. We know that, unlike the Purim story, Hanukkah is a story of religious persecution. We're happy to let us live. We had to ditch Judaism. And they understood which were the key cornerstones. So certain mitzvot, like Milo, or maybe a Jewish calendar, you can't have Jewish life without that. But it also seems clear, based on these sources, that they understood that the foundation of Jewish life Is the Jewish home and the Jewish family. We're not some amorphous amalgam, the Jewish people. We're lots of Jewish families. The building block of the Jewish people is the Jewish family and the Jewish home. If you can compromise that, you know, Mamela, all the other Humpty Dumpties will fall and never be able to put that back together. And therefore, the Greeks. Often our enemies know us better than we know ourselves. They attack the Jewish home, the Jewish family. And thank God when we were successful, when we commemorate the holiday, Chazal said, called bias of the bias. The focus is, is on the home. I think that is a very, very profound point that is often not appreciated. Um, unfortunately, some of the people who do their best to make us not appreciate it are the yeshivas. Because the message many of our children get. Is that the yeshiva is the central part of life. And this comes up with many, many, nafimina, sometimes from tensions between yeshivas and families and in, my, in myriads of different ways. I, I, it, it pains me and it, I think it's a mistake on the yeshiva's part. It, you know, not taking away from the importance of yeshiva or education to acknowledge that at the end of the day, they are, it's a Gemara Baba I don't, want to, don't get me on a rant about education now, but it, they're Makoros. I'm not, this is not just something I dreamed up. Our mechanchem, our teachers, our yeshivas, they are the representatives of the parents. Now, this is not just a pro-parenting thing. It's also, you don't get a free pass. There are so many people who have just given over their parenting responsibilities to the teachers. They're just extensions of you. But they're not instead of you. And they're still not more important than you. The parents and the home are the foundation of everything. Okay, we understand. We're not all experts in uh, Chumash, let alone Gemara. We don't always have the time. Yes, there's a reason that already from the time of Yeshua ben Gamla, there is an educational system which we're proud of. But it has to be not only seen in partnership, and sometimes, unfortunately, there's tension between homes and, and, and schools. But So that's the first tragedy. But even when everything's great, your kids happy in school, you love the school, it's all great. Yes, yeah, a hallelujah by all of us, for all of our children. But you should never forget The primary education, the primary responsibility is not the Rebbe. It's you. It's or bias. It's about the Jewish family. And I saw, last night I was looking through, uh, I I couldn't resist because he's so beautiful, characteristically, but Jonathan Sachs. Slightly different emphasis, but he also discusses this. He makes something very very uh, beautiful. I even gave you the uh, the URL if you want to go see it online. uh, You can find it. Um, He addresses this by introducing a slightly different angle, which is the comments that I have in the Rambam uh, in the second-to-last source on the page. And that is, I'll, I'll paraphrase it now, but it's really an amazing Rambam. The Rambam, in one of the only places in all of uh, his halachic writings, the Rambam refers to Hanukkah candles, mitzvah sneer Hanukkah, mitzvah chaviva hi ab It's a precious and beloved mitzvah. We have a custom in our house whenever we have guests, especially guests who don't know each other. There are people in this room who have been recently in our house. So you know the minog in the Gatling house. We make the guests all go around the table after Hamotzi uh, and tell us a few things about themselves, one of which is, what is your favorite Chag? And no surprise, lots of people say Chag. Seems like more people say Purim, but that's a discussion, especially yeshiva guys. But anyway, uh, or or, or people who work with yeshiva guys. I won't go into any more details. but turns out, if you'd ask the Rambam, it sounds like his favorite holiday is Chanaka. He doesn't say that about Rosh Hashanah. Mitzvah Chanaka is Chaviva Admod, and the Rambam puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't just say, I love it. My mommy gave me presents when I was a kid. I love dreidel and, uh, you know, uh, the, the good food and donuts. Says the Rambam, I'll tell you what that means. Let's say a person has so little money, they could only spend money on wine for Kiddush or money for the candles says the Rambam, candles come first. Candles come first. Because that's how important Hanukkah is. Now, not only that, Nebuch, Nebuch, what's worse than that? You know what's worse than that? What's more desperate than that? I don't have enough money for a shirt on my back or a candle. In almost every area of halacha, the answer would be, of course, I can't buy tefillin and put food on the table, but don't buy tefillin, put food on the table, that comes first shockingly, the Rambam says, Chanukah is an exception. Even if you have to sell the shirt off your back, Nebuch that's how important Chanukah is, Chaviva okay, Ad Now with all of that background, it's Chaviva, it's more important than Kiddush, even more important than a shirt on your back, now, this is the Rambam, a third scenario. You only have enough money for Shabbos candles or Hanukkah candles. It's Friday night, Shabbos Hanukkah. I'm so poor, Nebuch only can do one. Shabbos candles, Hanukkah candles. Now, it doesn't say anything about Chaviva Ad M'od for Shabbos candles. I would have expected it. It could be Kiddush. It should be able to beat Hanukkah, uh, Shabbos Licht as well. But says the Rambam, no. We're, I'll just read the, the underlying part there. near Beso Shabbos candles, comes even before Hanukkah candles. Kodem, why? Mishum Shalom Peso. we talked about this a little bit a little bit uh, when we did our, our series on Shabbos candles the, one of the themes of Shabbos candles is Shalom bias. there should be light in the house there should be a pleasant environment an uplifting environment not unless we don't stub your toe which could definitely ruin a Shabbos but what kind of conversation what kind of environment is there if you can't see your husband you can't see your wife you can't see your kids you know it's a bad environment we want it to be an uplifting environment that's what Shabbos candles represents Connect with each other, connect with the Shabbos, take a good breath, enjoy each other's company. You can't do that without the light. So that's what Shabbos is about, says the Rambam. Is important as Hanukkah is. Chaviva Abod Shabbos is more important. So with that background, Rabbi Sachs, you know, is shocked by this. How could it be? Why is it that Shabbos candles is so important, even more than Hanukkah candles? So look at his take. We'll look at the, the bottom of the page, turning over to the next one. Consider, Chana commemorates one of the greatest military victories of Jewish history. Yet Jewish law rules that if we can only light one candle, the Shabbos takes precedence. Because in Judaism, the greatest military victory takes second place to peace in the home. Again, it sounds obvious, maybe, but it's actually of shocking and profound importance. The Shabbos candle... Shalom Bayez is more important even than celebrating this incredible victory. Rabben Biad Why did Judaism alone among civilizations of the ancient world survive? Because it valued the home more than the battlefield. Marriage, more than military grandeur. And children, more than generals. Peace in the home mattered to our ancestors more than the greatest military victory. As he says in the final paragraph, peace between husband and wife, is above the highest glory on the battlefield. In Judaism, the light of peace takes precedent over the light of war. So, again, it's not exactly, exactly the same thing I was saying, but I think it's basically the same idea and it's certainly complementary uh, and and consistent. The home, and of course, if the home is the basis of Judaism, what's the basis of the home? Husband and wife. That is the foundation upon which the rest of the family will be built. So, the focus on the home is so, so important. Again, I mentioned previously, and again, I don't regret mentioning it, but I don't want it to distract us. It's not just a question of yeshiva versus home and who's responsible for education. Although, again, I think that is an important point that people sometimes, kind of, they rent out the responsibility of their children, uh, you know, and they forget that they're also responsible. Uh, it's not just the Rebbe you know, not going to see your child again after next year. It's you who are going to be with them forever. Uh, but it's more than that. It's in terms of prioritizing and organizing our own lives. It's easy, it's easy, especially for people who work in the professional world, to lose track, for good reasons, innocent, well-meaning reasons, to lose track of what's really, really important. Again, you can say it, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, quantity time is more important than quality time. Now, quality time is something that people made up because dads weren't around. He's never around, but at least he's there for quality time. It is better than nothing, but only barely. Prioritizing our families means prioritizing our families. Recognizing that there's simply nothing you, and I I would say this as much to men as to women. Please, you can quote me on this. There's nothing that any man or woman can do with their lives that is more important than what you do with your children. It is the single most important thing that any one of us can do. That doesn't mean that it's not important to be successful in other things. Of course it's important to do good things in your life outside the house too, but it's not more important. And that is true for men and for women. The greatest accomplishment in our lives, the most important task that we were all given, if we've been blessed with children, is our families. And Hanukkah is the holiday of families. Ner Ish Ubesum. We remember from kids, and Hazal tells us about the millions of followers that Avram and Sarah had. What happened to them? We don't really know. What we do know is, the, the legacy of Avram wasn't the million. It was the one. It was Yitzchak. That is our truest legacy, religiously and in every other way. The bias is the most important thing. It is our ultimate responsibility. How to do it, uh, different kids, different challenges, some kids are harder. Of course, I'm not trying to oversimplify. I'm quite aware of how complicated it is is, and everyone has their unique situation, and I get it but at least we have to understand what the headline is the headline is that there is nothing more important and one of the messages, not the only, but one of the very important messages of Hanukkah, is to reorient ourselves, and to remind us, 'er ne'er ishu beso and as important as that is shalom bias is even more important than that because at the end of the day the bias is the key to everything Last but not least, let's turn to our third point, which is a particular favorite of mine uh, because I like the idea, but also because uh, I get to quote my Rebbe, or uh, Rebbe Rosenzweig, uh, for this. Um, if you take a look, if you go back even to uh, the first side of the page, um, I'm going to, try to go a little quicker now so we don't uh, go over too much time, but that famous Gemara that we started with in section number two, where the, where the Gemara told us that the basic mitzvah is one candle per night. Of course, none of us do that. Why? Because the Gemara continued and said... Mahadrin ne'er What's Mahadrin? How do you do hitter mitzvah on We still only light one candle a night, but now instead of just the dad lighting, everyone in the family lights their own menorah. Okay, but then the Gemara says there's a third level. Mahadrin and min What's that? This is a famous machlokas between may Shamai in Beis Do we start off with eight candles a night? Count down to one. Beis Shamai's opinion. Or we go from 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 till 8, which is Beis Hillel's opinion. And the Gemara at the end of that source has different theories as to what the rationale would be. Why did Beis say this? Why does Beis Hillel say that? But the most well-known is the Gemara gives the last word there is, why does Beis Hillel say you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 up? The Ma'lin B'Kodesh the aim of reading. We should always be on a growth trajectory. Up, 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 up. Ma'lin B'Kodesh, going up in Kedusha. We don't want to start big and slowly dwindle. We want to build up to the crescendo, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. We want to be in a growth trajectory. Now, if you think about it for a second, um, this is really a, an anomaly. It's like a, a halachic unicorn. I'm not aware of any other area in halacha where we have a tripartite, a, you know, different levels. We have mitzvah and mitzvah, But for the Gemara to be giving me three different levels, mahadrin, and mahadrin, all, in contemporary Israel, they've decided that in the world of Kashras, we're going to adopt this idea. Mahadrin, mahadrin. Oh, you only do Mahadrin, I Mahadrin, mahadrin, Right? Okay. But that is, as we know, not one of the best parts about living in Israel. Okay? But in actual real halacha, only time. Not just some um, general hitter mitzvah, like Ivan, Vehu, that's true about everything. Have nice Shabbos candles, have nice tefillin, have. But in Chanukah, we have the Gemara itself telling us what is the hitter, and then it's not enough to do hitter, hitter, Mahadr, Miram Why is that? Why dafka in, in Hanukkah do we have that? We don't have that really in anything else. Moreover, if you take a look at the next, if you turn back now to the back of the page, um, the, you see those two sources, the Pnei and the Beis HaLevi, two of the great, great Ahronim, They both ask the following question. We started off this year by saying, why is it an eight-day holiday? It should only be a one-day holiday. They have a better question. They really go after the gun in it. Why is there a holiday at all? They say, because there was a miracle. Says the Beis HaLevi, and even before him the Pnei Yoshua. why did we need a miracle? Whoa, why you... did you go to Ghan? Why do you need a miracle? They only had one jug of pure oil. It took seven days to go back and forth from Tekoa. That was eight days. So they said, yeah, but you know what? They didn't teach you? Who said you can't light with impure pure oil? Who told you that? Ordinarily, you're not supposed to use impure oil in the base of That's You to do anything that's tamay in the base of Mikdush. That we do know, of course. But there's a rule called Tumah, Kutra, Petzibor. In certain extreme situations, for example, where a majority of the Jewish people are Tamay, which was certainly the case at the time of the Hanukkah story, then, in fact, not for your private carbon. This wouldn't allow you to bring your personal carbon uh, hoda, you know, carbon chata or toda. But for communal carbonate, like the carbon Tamid, or the menorah, which is on behalf of the Jewish people, in an extreme exigent circumstances where everyone's tummy anyway, there's a halacha. You're allowed to do it for tuma, tuma hutra what, This was a miracle that was unnecessary. They could have lit from the thousands of tummy jugs. For those eight days, and eventually they would have gotten tar oil. Of course we want to get tar oil. Seder, so it'll take us a week. So for a week we'll rely on the halachah to trip to Why did we need a miracle? So before I answer that question, a second question, uh, which is, you see the last Gemara on the page, also from the Gemara in Shabbos, a very, very famous Gemara. Where the Gemara in two, in two, in two uh, words basically seems to be asking the question of our shir. My Hanukkah. What is the holiday of Hanukkah? What is the purpose of, of the holiday of Hanukkah. What are we commemorating? So the Gemara answers and tells us that on the 25th of Kislev, first it tells us what the halakhas are, what do you do? Okay, you light the candles, you don't have any uh, hespadim, and you can't fast, but then at the end of the first line there, the Gemara tells us, right? The, the Greeks came in, Timu Timukolashmanim, and then eventually the Chashmanim were victorious, and they fought back, and they bought they couldn't find it except for Pach Echat Shal which had the Chosem of the Kohen Gadol, and they could have only lasted for one day. Nasenes, it was a miracle, they lived from it, and it stayed eight days. The next year, wow, they said, this is the anniversary of that miracle that took place last year in Kislev. Kavum Yamim Tovim, Bahal Right? We want to ask, why do we have Chanukah? And what's the answer? Because of the nes of the Parshamen. Many, many Shem ask. You seem to have forgotten half the story. Maybe even the main part of the story, which is, what about the miracle of the victory? Here, it's barely a footnote. We mention the victory only to explain how they got to the base of Megiddo to get the oil. But it's all about the oil, 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 oil. Interestingly, in Al which we say in benching and davening, that's all about the military victory. Rabbat Matim, etc., etc., Temeim biat Pahorim. We don't mention the oil there. What is the real story of Hanukkah? The military victory, which was miraculous in its own way, religious freedom, something that everyone benefited from, or this one little miracle, which is taking place cloistered only a few Kohanim even knew about at the time, which we now learn wasn't even necessary. Because they could have lit in, lit in pure oil. Why is the Gemara seem to be so focused on that menorah? So I think that uh, the answer to both of these questions, which I've seen in many sources, and again, there's, there's enough material to develop this as its own sheer, but for this we'll, uh, we'll let Rav Rosenzweig uh, speak so to speak, for himself, well, maybe I'll, I'll help him a little bit. And this is from a sheer I heard this Baal Peh from him in, very, in great depth, uh, Kidarko, numerous times, and about 15 years ago, he wrote this up uh, for a very, very wonderful website called TorahWeb.org. Uh, um, and um, you can find uh, the longer version of the Star Torah uh, there. And he basically makes the point, um, let's, we'll read a little bit inside together. It is conceivable that the menorah miracle emerged as a central figure and symbol of Hanukkah. Again, that's the question. Why are we focusing so much on the menorah? That's the little esoteric, unnecessary miracle. Why not on the big, incredible miracle of the victory? Precisely because it was not technically indispensable. Right? It's a paradox. That's because we didn't need the miracle. That's why we focus on it. As many people point out, Hanukkah was, was a religious battle, right? So they weren't trying to kill us, they were trying to... It was religious extinction. The Hashem their revolt, rejected the very notion of, classic of Rosenzweig language, institutionalized spiritual mediocrity the Ivanim were smart. They didn't say right away, no Judaism. <laughs> but what they did say is, you're going to have a mediocre Judaism. You're going to have a compromise Jewish life. And as so if Rosenzweig develops, it's not just like intuitive or common sense. Halacha itself allows for various compromises. Especially when you're dealing with an implacable enemy who might be threatening your life. A lot of things allow you to compromise on halacha. To prioritize other things, especially your life, but that's when it's isolated. Povasham, I can live my firm life, but now Nebuch, my daughter, uh, got uh, fell off her bike and she releases really me bleeding. I have to take an ambulance to the hospital on Shabbos. So that's a compromise. I, I'm saying something comes before Shabbos. Yes, that's allowed. There can be other myriads of examples. That's when it's isolated. But what about when they say no, not today or for this shaila? I want you to compromise. I want your life to be one of compromise. That we can't compromise on, says Ergoz and so like. That's exactly what the revolt of the Hashem were. It wasn't because they were going to kill us. They weren't going to kill us. And each one of the things, you can't have bris or we'll kill you, well, of course, so why would they have a revolt over that? Kiddush HaKodesh is so important, you have to give up your life for that? They won't let us close the door. That's what we have to give up our life for? To fight the Greeks? we were fighting the, you know, the superpower of his day. The answer is not because of the individual mitzvos, because they wanted the Jews to live a life of mediocrity. And that is something that we cannot accept. The nation cannot acquiesce to the decrees against the study of Torah and the performance of mitzvot because such acquiescence would have undermined the very foundation of Jewish existence, even if it might have temporarily secured the physical continuity of the nation. As he says a little bit later, the whole premise of the holiday is the realization that Jewish life cannot long survive without the idealism and ambition of a life. Of mitzvos. Yes, there are individual times where we can compromise. But when applied pervasively to justify a comprehensive and systemic breakdown of halachic life, such a policy of compromise would condemn Kla Yisrael to spiritual oblivion. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, it's true that when they got to that moment, those Kohanim could have compromised. They could have relied on a heter. It exists. It's on the books. It's mutter. Rabbi, tell me, is it mutter or not? Is there a heter? Yes, there's a heter. You. you can use impure oil in this case. So, why didn't they rely on that? Why did I make a miracle? The answer is because the whole revolt was so that they didn't have to compromise. That we should have a life of Jewish compromise. Now, when they finally are successful, what's the first thing we're going to do? Compromise? The whole revolt was so that we don't have to live a compromised life, but a life of what Rosenwald likes to call religious maximalism, or what I called religious aspiration. If you spend your life just saying, but Rabbi, is there a heter? Yeah. The answer is there may be. But then you're writing yourself into oblivion. A person who lives their lives, and let alone if an enemy would try to make the whole Jewish people live our lives, just based on where is there a heter? Where is that a compromise? That is not a Jewish life. That is not a Torah life. Each of us at our own speed, and the hinder or the maximum well, he's calling maximalism, I'm calling aspiration. What's good for you or for your family is not necessarily good for you or your family. That's another classic mistake of our generation we paint with very broad brushes and one size supposed to fit everybody. Massive the, the levels of casualties uh, of children because of that mentality are way too many to list. But whatever the right way of aspiration, it has to be, as I say, a growth trajectory. Slow, steady in these areas, that area. That's not those are details. Important details, but details. But it has to be a life of religious aspiration. That is the essence of Rose Like of the holiday of Hanukkah. They could have lived a compromised Jewish life, right? Yeah, I don't know what would have happened hundred years later, but at the moment at least that they rebelled against the Greeks, they could have avoided the whole thing. They could have been keeping, you know, 600 plus of the mitzvos, kept their lives, would have been fine. But it would have been a life of compromise. And once you take out aspiration and the desire for growth, you've begun the death process, you just don't know it. If you cut out the roots... It may take a few days for the plant to die, but it's already dying. The roots of a Jewish neshama are striving, are growing, are trying to be better. Again, just think about it in almost any other area. It could be Lahaviel in and the job area, right? Once you take away the ability to grow, to look, to aspire, to be better, you're just punching a clock, it's like the walking dead. It's certainly true for neshamas as well. And that is the holiday of Hanukkah. That's why, as important as the military victory was... But that doesn't encapsulate any... Yeah, the, I'll say it in this way, and I don't, I don't mean chas Hashem to, to denigrate either of them. The military victory of Hanukkah is not any more unique than the Six-Day War or some other military victory in Jewish history. Those are miracles, which we thank Hashem for. We thank Hashem for the Six-Day War miracle, we thank Hashem for the military victory in Hanukkah. But that's not unique to Hanukkah, says everyone's like. What makes Hanukkah unique was the minuah in the sense of it represents... The, 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 the war represented Jewish physical survival menorah, miracle, represented the miracle of Jewish aspiration and um, actualization. Now I'm just going to read, I want to read one thing for you, and this will conclude. Um, where is the quote for you? Uh, okay, I'm sorry, one second. Uh Oh yeah, okay, good. Go to the Pnei Yoshua. Again, I said, he's one of the people who would ask, why was there a miracle at all? They could have just relied on the Tamei or, uh, oil. Says the Pnei Yoshua so beautifully. Again, he basically makes this idea, Rosenzweig is amplifying these two, these earlier sources in his own beautiful, inimitable way. But the Pnei Yoshua basically says, yes, the Jewish people did not want to rely on the Bidyeved of the Tamei or miracle, uh oil, and Hashem gave them a miracle. Why? L'chei <speaking in Hebrew> nira, first line of the Pnei Yoshua. L'chei <speaking in Hebrew> nira, why did Hashem make a miracle? Why didn't Hashem just say, you know, deal with the tommy oil? <speaking in Hebrew> it's a totally powerful way of looking at it. The miracle of the candles was a kiss from Hashem, it was a sign of affection. It was a delicious hug, a kiss from Hashem. It was a sign of his love. You're willing to go to war, you're willing to fight, not to survive but to live a life of spiritual aspiration in that way. We, you know, we went first. We said, I love you first. It's the hardest place to be. It's the hardest to be the guy. Okay? To, to go first. Okay? We did that by fighting against the Greeks, saying we're not going to settle. We don't want to live a life of, you know, here and now we can compromise, but a life of compromise, that's not a relationship we want with Hashem. That was so inspiring, says the Pnei he reciprocated. An O shalchiba, a hug, a kiss from Hashem, was that miracle. So yes, you are willing to do that. So therefore, that's why mahadrin is such an important part of Hanukkah. It's built in. And you don't know anyone, unless they're in a tank, or who knows where, and they have no candles, whoever in their whole life heard somebody lighting one candle. How is it? How come, how co- like in everything else in Judaism, some people spend this on an astro, and some people get the mahadran astro, and these people do this for their kashras. So and how come in Hanukkah we're all mahadram and mahadran Jews? because that's built into our DNA. The whole miracle was for the Mahajan and the Mahadran. Okay, Chazal said, in case you're nebuch nebuch in a crazy situation, you light one candle. But who keeps that? There's nobody does that. Because we all understand that the whole holiday is about Mahajan, about religious aspiration and maximizing our religious connection to Hashem. So here are three, I think each one of them, very, very powerful ideas. We spoke about the idea of Nes Nistar, seeing Hashem in everyday life. We spoke about the foundation of Judaism being the home, and now we spoke about the idea of religious aspiration uh, and maximalism. And I hope, uh, it's crazy, but we're actually not far away from Hanukkah. Uh, it's coming, uh, and I hope that each of these ideas, or at least one of them, uh, can enrich your Hanukkah. And as I say, I hope you share this with your families and enrich their lives as well.